Back to Luke's Gospel, we return this morning to continue the series of sermons we started during the uh, Advent season last year. So the second chapter, I invite your attention, we'll pick up at verse 39. Uh, Luke is continuing to unfold here this historical account of the Christ for the sake of assuring his readers of the things they have been taught, and that, of course, includes us. And Dr. Luke is a, a careful physician, so he's not at all haphazard in the construction of this uh, record, as some have accused him. There is uh, a pattern here. Uh, remember when the angel Gabriel met with Mary uh, to tell her that she would bear the Savior, he told her that he would be called Jesus, that he would be called holy, and that he would be called the Son of God. Well, he's been named Jesus at his circumcision in verse 21. He has been called holy in verse 23. In fact, that was the reason why he had to be presented by his parents in the temple. In today's passage, he is called the Son of God, by virtue of the fact that he, as Jesus said himself to his uh, frazzled mother, uh, that God is his Father. We've uh, come this morning then to a, a deliberate wrap up by Luke of this early narrative cycle in this gospel, starting in chapter 1 with the promise of a child to Mary who would be in some ways entirely ordinary and in other ways entirely extraordinary. And somewhere in there, if we will listen closely this morning, there will be plenty of lessons for us. And so, our Father, we pray that you will give us ears uh, to hear and hearts ready to receive your truth and deeply to be challenged by it, to be corrected in our thinking by it, to be comforted and strengthened by it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 2. We pick up at verse 39 and read through 52. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was twelve years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. 
And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? They did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. When I was a boy, our family would sometimes travel, usually not very far, a few hours perhaps, and camp. My parents loaded up six of us children into the Ford Econoline van, and hooked up the pop-up tent camper, and off we'd go. I was the oldest, and the youngest was 10 years my junior. Each of us children had his or her own personality traits, and the specialty of one of my brothers in particular was getting lost and uh, left behind. On one particular trip, I think it was a longer one actually, this one, to uh, New England, we pulled over for a quick stop, one of those everyone jump out and hit the bathroom while Dad uh, fills the tank sort of stops. Out we piled and, and back again, lickety-split and off in a flash. And we drove and drove and drove. And then someone sheepishly asked, where's Tim? It was a question we had grown accustomed to asking, actually, uh, several times a day. Some days, but this time it had a particular urgency about it. We'd traveled a long way before we noticed that Tim was gone. Our straying lamb had not only strayed, but had been left far behind. Back we went to that gas station to find it. My mother terrified, my, eye, my father's eyes fixed. I could see in the rearview mirror uh, children, by the way, this was before cell phones, if you can imagine such a thing racing back to that place, covering every foot of ground he could with that, uh, those eight cylinders of that green van pumping away. I think my mother was concerned. I think my dad was fluctuating between a desire to restore his lost son and to wring his wandering neck. And, uh, and there we found him, you know, at the gas station, right where we left him, only now with tear stains on his face to match the new wrinkles on my mother's. But imagine Mary's fear and Joseph's when they realized that Jesus was not with them. They traveled an entire day from Jerusalem before discovering that Jesus was neither with Mary at the front of the caravan nor with Joseph at the back. He was just plain gone, nowhere to be found. It was an entire day's journey to go back to Jerusalem to find him. That was the second day. It took them a whole day to find him in Jerusalem, a third day before they came to him at the temple. 
What had they been doing there in Jerusalem in the first place? Well, true to form, this family had been obeying the Lord, fulfilling God's law. Three festivals were to be observed every year, particularly by the men, according to the law, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Now, not everyone could make it to Jerusalem for all three, so it was typical uh, for families, for men and families to choose one. Most of them chose the Passover, and that indeed was the occasion that had brought not only Joseph, but also his devoted wife to Jerusalem with Jesus, their son. Luke tells us that this was an annual occurrence for this devout and faithful family. It must have been a great experience for Jesus, you know. Coming to Jerusalem, crammed streets full of worshipers, perhaps as many as 200,000 of them, and 100,000 sheep to boot to celebrate the Passover. Well, the people were there to celebrate, the sheep were there for Another reason, <clears throat> they were part of the celebration. The sights and sounds of the place and smells must have filled his senses. And Feasting with friends and worshiping with family and hearing his father tell the Passover story of salvation again. These things enthralled him. But nothing captured his attention like the temple where they went to pray and to sing psalms. Nothing took hold of Jesus like the house of God. And now the company he found there, rabbis, discussing theology on these great porches around the place. That's where he was when his mother, sick with worry, found him. Quiet Joseph didn't have to say a thing. Mary said enough for the both of them. Son, why? Have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Now that last expression in Greek is a very, very strong one indeed. It means a state of panic, of deep mental anguish and pain. Jesus means no disrespect whatsoever. He's a little surprised. Why, why were you looking for me? Don't you know that I must be, among, uh, be in my father's house? Another translation about the things of my father. They didn't understand him. They didn't get it. They took him by the hand back home. And willingly he went, submitted. Submitted to his parents went back down to Nazareth because everything is down uh, from Jerusalem. Regardless of the actual elevation, everything is down from the place where God's house is. And there in Podunk, Nazareth, in Galilee, Luke says, verse 52, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Now, he'd already said something about him like this before the episode, back in verse 40. He said that the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now, none of this takes place according to our expectations. 
the way we would imagine Jesus' youth because of what we know about Jesus, uh, his miracles during his ministry. You know, we expect to... We accept, expect something much more dazzling than this, uh, particularly because this is the only record we have of his uh, youth, this event. I think that it goes a long way toward explaining what we find when we turn to the apocryphal uh, Gospels, books that were not included in the Bible, but uh, indeed deliberately left out because they did not bear the authoritative weight and apostolic testimony and witness of the ones that appear in your Bible today. In some of those uh, Gospels, as they style themselves, the boy Jesus is about all sorts of uh, sensational things. But the very kind of things that we might uh, expect to hear. In one story, infant Jesus comes upon a palm tree and commands the palm tree to bow down and refresh my mother with your fruit, which it does immediately. In another, uh, five-year-old Jesus models 12 sparrows out of, out of the, the, the mud and the clay, sets them out and claps his hands, and they come to life and fly away. Now, those are a couple of very tame stories compared to the ones I could relate to you this morning. Those are the kind of things that we expect to hear, but don't. In fact, what's really remarkable about what we've just read is really how unremarkable it is. Okay, there's the fact that Jesus is able at the age of 12 to interact with the scholars of his day, the theologians, and even to amaze them with his understanding. But even that sends us right back to the fact that Jesus was a real boy. He was a real boy. Are you listening, boys and girls? He was a real boy, just like you are. In every way, just like you are, save except for sin. The reason he knew so much theology, according to Luke, was not because he was omniscient, because he knew everything. He didn't. He wasn't omniscient. He didn't know everything in his human nature. Jesus knew these things because he'd studied he had come to know and understand so well, had such a handle on wisdom because, because he read his Bible, because he searched out knowledge, because he studied. Luke tells us in plain terms here that Jesus grew in wisdom. What we learn here in these verses, dear flock, is that Jesus was a real, genuine man. His human nature was just that, and only that. Human. Not a superman. Not a mixture of deity and humanity. Oh no. Jesus was a real man, and before that he was a real boy. Physically, spiritually, spiritually. 
He was a genuine boy, just like you boys here this morning, like you in every way except for sin. As a normal human boy, he was no more able to make sparrows out of mud than you are. He couldn't do it. He was able to be left behind by his parents. If he wanted to learn something, he had to study it because he didn't know it. As he grew up in his parents' house, they said things to little Jesus like, Oh, what a big boy you are, when he took his first steps and said his first word. They laughed when his food ended up on his infant face instead of in his mouth. They had to teach him to read. They had to teach him to write. They had to teach him to solve for X. We have a hard time grasping this. We really do. We do, I think, have a problem understanding that Jesus was a real human being in just the way that you and I are human beings. We're always, always modifying, changing somehow his humanity in our minds by mixing it with his deity. We do this all the time, subconsciously even. We misread the Gospels all the time in just that way, making him a superman instead of a genuinely, fully, plainly human being. He may have looked like a human being. He may have had in principle an authentic human nature, but we tend to think he was not really, really he wasn't like us. But the Bible says he was. He didn't know what was in someone else's mind. He wasn't a mind reader. Unless it was revealed to him. Just like it had been revealed to prophets before. He didn't know what was going to happen later that day. Much less what was going to go on later in the week. He was just as surprised by a sudden storm on the horizon as the next guy was. Later on in his ministry, he knew broadly how events would unfold, because he'd been told, not because he was omniscient. Oh, he was wise, yes, of course he was. He had understanding and he had wisdom, but he got those the regular way. As we sometimes say, he got them the old-fashioned way, by studying and by praying and by faith. He was no more omniscient than you are. He didn't know everything. And he didn't have a problem saying he didn't. He's the one who said he didn't know the hour of his return. He didn't know who touched him in a crowd when a woman snuck up behind him who was bleeding all of her life to be healed by the touch of his garments. He had to ask because he didn't know. If he wanted to know whether a fig tree in the distance had fruit on it, he had to walk over and look at it to see. And what was true of him later in life was true of him as a child. He was a normal child, grew up normally, as children do, in development of body and soul. Children, listen to this. He was tempted 
to do everything that you're tempted to do. You know, when his brother Jude came up and and snatched one of his toys away, you know what Jesus was inclined to do? Punch him in the nose. When his mother called and he was playing with his friends and having a great time, he was inclined not to hear her call and act like nothing had happened. On the positive side, when it was time to learn some new vocabulary, he had to study it. And he had to study it hard. He had to repeat those words to himself over and over. Take a test. Memorize it just like you. Physically speaking, his muscles developed just like your muscles developed. Spiritually, his mind developed and his thoughts went from childish thoughts to manly thoughts. And then in the normal course of things, the normal way. Luke even uses the present participle to describe his spiritual growth as a gradual day-by-day development. I'm going to great lengths here, I know, to make the point. But I do so because I know your hearts. Because I know my heart. I know the resistance that you have, and I, to the idea that Jesus was a real, genuine man after being a real, genuine boy. I don't deny, of course, that God the Son was, is, and ever shall be omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent. But Jesus was none of those things as a man. And we must believe that, and we must hold to that tenaciously, or else do violence to the doctrines we confessed even this morning from Paul's letter to the Philippians. The doctrine of the Incarnation. I cannot tell you, of course, how it is that the divine nature was kept from overwhelming the human. We can't say. We are up against a great mystery here. Maybe the greatest, unless there's one greater than that, the triple personality of the one living and true God. But this is what the Gospels present to us, and this is what we must believe. Jesus was a real boy, and he was a real man after that, who lived his life just like we do, with all the same limitations, all the same temptations, the very same tools, by the way, with which to deal with those temptations as you have. Memorized scripture, for example, as we saw him use in the desert during his... Uh, fasting and temptation, all the trials, all the emotions, all the fears. And all of that life lived the same way you live it, by faith. Take careful note this morning of three things in particular. First is suffering. What must it have meant... For the eternal Son of God to become a man and to start off as a boy. He obeyed his parents. He submitted to his parents. When he'd rather delight himself in the discussion of theology with the theologians at the temple, instead he submits himself, he obeys his parents, a carpenter and his wife, his mother, and goes back with them to Nowheresville 
to work in his father's carpenter work, we understand as a carpenter's apprentice. He subjects himself to the cold and the heat, to cuts and to bruises, to smashing his thumb with the hammer, which led to some other temptations, to the sins of others, even his own siblings, his own family, who as often as not, maybe more often totally, misunderstood and even opposed his work. And on top of all of the pains and trials of growing up in a sinful and broken world, the the pains of adolescence, he knew them all. Who of us who are grown-ups here today really would want to become children again, would want to go back, say, to the high school years? Uh, Maybe there are a few of you here, but that's only because you're very forgetful and may have a streak of masochism in yourself. Uh, Jesus lived through the awkwardness, through the disappointments, the setbacks, the heartbreaks, the frustrations, the sicknesses, the growing pains of youth. This, too, is part of his suffering for you and for me. He did all of this. He became a genuine human being with all of the limitations. Second, he did this to be your Savior. There was no other way to redeem his people from their sins and to free us from the wrath of God. This is not a pageant going on. This is not Jesus play-acting his way through life. To meet the requirements of a just God and the needs of guilty men, he had to become a man. And he had to be, as the writer of Hebrews puts it, made perfect, if you can wrap your mind around that, through suffering. He learned obedience by suffering. And in that way became our perfect substitute. He lived... A life of five-year-olds suffered the pains of that age in the place of five-year-olds. He lived in the place of ten-year-olds and twelve-year-olds for the sake of ten-year-olds and twelve-year-olds. Of nineteen-year-olds for nineteen-year-olds. Of the life of an adult he lived in the place of adults. My brothers and sisters, we have barely begun to scratch the surface here of what Christ did for us when he became a bona fide human being in his pursuit and apprehension of our redemption. Samuel Rutherford at least comes a little closer than I can. He would be blood, be of blood to us. Not only come to the sick, wrote Rutherford, and to our bedside, but would lie down and be sick taking on him sick clay, and be in that condition of clay a worm and not a man, that he might pay our debts and borrow a man's heart to sigh for us, man's eyes to weep for us, his spouse's body, legs, and arms to be pierced for us, our earth, our breath, our life and soul, that he might breathe out His life for us. A man's tongue and soul to pray for us. What love. Oh, what love. Christ would not entrust our redemption to angels, to millions of angels, but would come himself and in person suffer. 
He would not give a low and base price for us clay. He would buy us with a great ransom so as he might overbuy us. And no one could overbid him in his market for souls. If there had been millions of more believers in many heavens, without any new bargain, his blood should have bought them all. And all these many heavens should have smelled the one rose of life. Christ should have been one and the same tree of life in them all. Oh, we underbid and undervalue that prince of love who did overvalue us. We will not sell all we have to buy him. He sold all he had and himself too to buy us. Third, and know well, his sympathy with you. By, uh, through becoming a real boy and then man, suffering, he became a perfect priest who knows how to help you in the time of your need, in the middle of your trials and your temptations. And that at every stage of life, from, from childhood to full adulthood. And sympathizing, he knows how to help. Now think about this. As a genuine human being, he was tempted in every way that you are tempted. In every way. And in most respects, that temptation was much more severe than any temptation you've ever faced. He knew the sorrow. He knew the pain and the confusion of sin. Even though he himself had never sinned. He knew the struggles of living by faith and not by sight. Just like you do. He knew what it was to pray with loud cries and tears. What it was to to be heard by the Father because of his reverence. He knew God's love and faithfulness better at 30 years old than he did at 20 And better at 20 than he did at 12. Because Jesus, as he grew, understood better and better his own weaknesses. And his own desperate need for the Spirit of God to be at work and alive in him. Or else die. And that by bitter experience. Don't you dream for one minute that he can't sympathize and doesn't. And perfectly with everything that you go through. And I mean everything. He does. I'll finish with just one example. There are many, many, of course, that we might consider. Take just this one. Loneliness. You know what it is like to be lonely. Some of you are much more terribly than others. It's a crushing burden. That many people suffer. And it's a source of many temptations. Temptations that range from anger to despair, from resentment to just downright unbelief. Think your Jesus doesn't understand? 
think again. He knows that one inside and out. He knows the sting of loneliness made the more bitter by being in the middle of a crowd of people and being so terribly lonely in the middle of them, even a crowd of friends, even close friends. He knows what it means to be completely and utterly misunderstood and misrepresented. He knows what it is to be abandoned at just precisely the time when understanding friends are needed the most. It drove him to hours of solitary prayer, of pleading with God with tears for help. To praying through the Psalms in the cold night air. He knows. He knows your loneliness. As a poet has it, not even the tenderest heart and next our own knows half the reasons why we smile or sigh. Thou knowest our loneliness, no stranger thou to all our solitude. He suffered to be your Savior. And now, seated on the throne of heaven, he sympathizes with you with a perfect sympathy, a perfect understanding. Only now, since his ascension into heaven, that fellow feeling that he has with you is joined with omnipotence. So the Lord can now act on your behalf to help you, as he himself knows from personal experience that you need help right now.